0: Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. The Reverend Julio Valenzuela currently serves as a staff chaplain in the Federal Bureau of Prisons and a brigade chaplain in the New Mexico Army National Guard. His academic achievements include a Bachelor of Sciences in Computer Science from his native Mexico. Later, he earned a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies and obtained his Master of Divinity from Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. He, received, he was received in the Anglican Church and ordained to the priesthood in 2016. Father Julio, welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast.
1: Father Zach, thank you for having me.
0: Father Julio, in your JFAC Journal article, which our listeners can read on the classic Anglican blog, you wrote that the Protestant evangelical tradition had become, quote, a reductionist version of the Christian faith with a tendency to create artificial dichotomies and a desacralization of the spiritual life, end quote. Can you take us a bit deeper into your thoughts there?
1: Well, let me unpack um, unpack a little bit uh, uh, that sentence because uh, it is certainly full of uh, theological stuff. Uh, r- first, regarding um, the uh, desacralization uh, of, of of the Christian life, uh, uh, is very well documented uh, in. Uh, in, in, in sociology of religion, in, in, in other writings from the beginning of the 20th century uh, that uh, Protestantism and modernism go hand in hand uh, in, in, in regards to uh, uh, minimizing or discarding uh, the mystical view of the world, the supernatural view of the world. Um, And uh, that changed actually during the 20th century. Uh, uh, We see, you know, the hippie movement and and the the rise of Eastern spiritualities. Uh, As a Latin American, uh, that was an interesting thing for me to observe. Uh, I I grew up in in my native Mexico, and uh, I I arrived in, in the US when I was 25 in order to, you know, study. Uh, in my in Bible college, and so uh, over these last twenty plus years, I've been I'm an observer of the culture, and I, I, I've noticed some interesting things that we don't see in Latin America or other parts of the world, where uh, we could say that societies are less modern, and sometimes even pre-modern. I would say uh, we 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 never had those. Uh, New Age movements uh, and the hippie movement, uh, and 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 when I did a research uh, into that topic in seminary, I, I I found out that it was a reaction, uh, uh, mostly American European, uh, against the excesses of modernism, and and obviously Protestantism uh, had a lot uh, of it as well. Uh, people just. Uh, had this hunger and and, and dissatisfaction uh, for for the traditional forms of of Christianity in Protestant America, uh, with the laws of of of, of mysticism and, and, and the sacramental life, uh, and that disenchantment with 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 that form of Christianity, well, then they started looking uh, uh, at the East for for the responses and, and, and answers to their questions and, and to exercise a, a, a more uh, holistic spiritual life. So uh, we didn't see that in, in Latin America because we didn't become that kind of, of a, a reductionist uh, version of Christianity. Obviously, the Roman Catholic Church is a majority church there, But, uh, there is, there is these, uh, uh, we need something else here in the, in this country, maybe in Europe as well, that, uh, is more exacerbated here, uh, than in, like I said, in Mexico, for example. And I, Uh, I
0: think one of the things that, um, you know, we didn't experience in, um, the majority of of North America, meaning the United States and Canada, um, that much of Latin America, or some of Latin America experienced, we didn't experience Marxism in the same way. Whereas if someone did have a reductionist experience within uh, Marxism of an elimination of faith, they had still there a very robust faith on which to fall back on within the Catholic tradition. Whereas in the United States, when we embraced ultramodernism, which really is, is sort of the next extension of, of the modernist movement of Marxism, you get this ultramodernism of Foucault, Derrida, those things. Then folks started going on this spiritualist journey because the Protestant faith had, like you said, brought in a lot of artificial dichotomies and a desacralization of the church. So now you had this sterile faith, that really lack that deep, rich heritage. Is that kind of of um, the direction that that you're thinking in in that sentence?
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, in, in in Mexico, uh, uh, the, the the churches, uh, Protestant evangelicals, they are still very much uh, uh, in, in, in that environment of anti-catholic anti-roman and therefore uh their houses of worship are are more like warehouses like four white walls and nothing else uh and so you know it's not perfect there either you know you have a lot of 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 things also that that you can notice it you know something is is missing uh if, even in 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 Mexico, uh, when you belong to a Protestant a church, uh, it is noticeable. Uh You don't feel this is a sacred space. Uh, sacred space is is one of the big casualties that can is is obviously evident when the first moment you step into uh, those churches, um, and and it it started to change in this country. Uh, during the second half of the second uh, of of the twentieth century, but not so much in Mexico. There's still uh, like we don't want crosses, we don't want anything. So sacred space, uh, and obviously the, the the theological, the Protestant theology behind it is like uh, these opposition, right, dichotomies, opposition between transcendence of God and the immanence of God. Uh, that is uh, a very foundational opposition or false dichotomy, or as I, I call it, an artificial dichotomy, uh, they should exist in a tension. Uh, but the moment we break it, then, you know, that's, that's what a heresy is, when we break tensions. So, uh, it, you know, the ancient faith is usually both end. Uh Protestants tend to oppose faith against works uh, and, and, and 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 also, you know uh, the transcendence of God versus the imminence of God. So Calvin, uh, Luther, to some degree, but more Calvin, totally opposed to uh, the presence of the divine in temples because God is transcendent and he cannot live in 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 churches created by human hands. So this radical separation, uh, this breaking of the tension was right there at the very beginning. So, uh, there are theological reasons why we see what we see, you know, uh, it's not, it's, it's beyond worship styles, beyond architecture. There's these basic theological approaches from Protestantism that, that are reductionist, uh, create, uh, artificial dichotomies. And, uh, at the beginning, I didn't know how to, uh, articulate that. I just felt something is missing here, but, you know, upon closer examination, um, then I, I found out what it was,
0: and the it makes sense historically that some of the first Protestant missionaries from the United States into the territories mm-hmm. that previously had belonged to Mexico uh, and then later became a part of the United States, and then even down into Mexico, starting in the 1830s and onward, also coincided with the restoration movement and a very extreme form of uh, Zwinglianism. And and so it would stand to reason that there was, you know, in some ways there may even be a bit of a time capsule in some of those missionary ep- efforts there in in Mexico, in the remaining of, of Latin America. And certainly we see that in, in different forms of diaspora, whereas then those sending churches may have actually gone through the liturgical renewal movement in the mid-20th century and regained some of those things. You mentioned something that is very near and dear to my heart, and and something that I think we uh, really find important in the idea of classic Anglicanism, and that is the sense of the holiness of a space. And I recently read a commentary, listened to a commentary by an evangelical um, commentator, and she was talking about that Uh, we need to leave the building and get out into God's creation and take a break from the building. Uh, And she talked about the irony of um, going into a sterile building and having mountains projected on a projector as we're singing to sing about God's creation rather than going out in it. And uh, it was a very sort of uh, iconoclastic message because it was totally devoid of the rich tradition, Catholic tradition of intentional architecture in creating a holy space that we inherit from, um, the, the faith, the ancient faith of, um, of all of scripture, old and new Testament, the idea of a temple and then also in these holy spaces that we set apart. Um, Within Anglicanism, there is a great deal of diversity, and you mentioned some of these dichotomies, and that in the ancient church and in Anglicanism today, which we are still a part of that ancient faith, um, you and I look at the effects of reductionism. We find bodies that have split over soteriology, sanctification, eternal reprobation, predestination. So how is it that someone like you and me that uh, uncharitably, maybe someone might describe you as more Wesleyan in your soteriology or uncharitably, somebody might describe me as more Calvinistic in my soteriology. How is it that we can thrive in the same communion without, uh, schism? I mean, are, are you and I just lousy theologians or is there something more going on there?
1: Oh, interesting question. Uh, and I'm glad that you brought Augustine, uh, because he is a good example of uh, the tension uh, that existed even in the early church in the Church of the Fathers. Um,
0: so it, I, I it mentioned was... I mentioned Calvin, and and to be fair to Father Julio, in our pre-show we were talking <laughs> about Augustine. So I want to. Uh, you had a, I messed up your transition, but we were sort of talking about the difference between Augusti, Augustinianism, and then some of the later reformers. But I, I wanted to let you off the hook on that. Uh, but we had mentioned uh, Augustine earlier, so please go ahead.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't see myself as 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 Wesleyan or or even Armenian because. Uh, they didn't exist in the early church so uh, what, what did the early church believe before uh, Ar- Armenians or Calvin were born well I, I want to go there so I I, I go beyond uh, these reformers uh, I may coincide with some of their doctrine but uh, not with all of it uh, the same the same for Augustine. Um, the Church of the Fathers was not uh, without controversy, we know. Uh, and Augustine is is um, is the darling of, of some reformers, uh, especially Calvin, because they see in him a validation of, of certain doctrines that they espouse. But uh, it's interesting uh, that some of of those uh, more radical uh, positions of Augustine, never reached this status of consensus And Anglicanism uh, which I, I like very much is uh, that we the criteria uh, for the Reformation of the church is not uh, what Cranmer's uh, you know said or thought we, we like to go and we want to go to the consensus of the early church uh, well um this is the problem with, with Augustine and, and some reformers. Yes, they read the Fathers, and just like uh, sometimes they, they make a selective reading of the Scripture, they also make a selective reading of the Fathers. And, and we are prone to, to that temptation. But um, the thing with Augustine is it's obvious that the Roman Catholic Church pre Augustine. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, does not believe in double predestination and in one save, always save and those things. So they, they reinterpret Augustine um, and, and and the Orthodox, uh, they ignore him <laughs> on, on, on these regards, on these positions. I, uh, I mean, I remember when I was in, in church history, in seminary, my my professor, seminary professor of church history. She was Greek Orthodox, uh, and, and she she said, well, in the West, you know, the the, the greatest mind, it was just Augustine, basically, and they were, in, the, in the West, they didn't have any other greater minds to check each other like in the East. So, you know, so she was saying that, like, Augustine, you know, he wrote certain things that, Uh, we really never believed. (laughs) So not everything that he wrote, we accept. Basically, that's what he was saying from the Orthodox perspective. So let me read uh, to you what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about Augustine uh, as a jumping board. Both modern Roman Catholic and Protestant Christianity owe much to Augustine, though in some ways each community has at times been embarrassed to own up to that allegiance in the face of irreconcilable elements in his thought. For example, Augustine has been cited as both a champion of human freedom and an articulate defender of divine predestination. There you have it. Sounds so, like a good Anglican. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we uh, we live in a tension um, uh, At the end of the day, predestination uh, and, uh, you know, other soteriological issues that can be very divisive, the way I see it is, uh, it's mostly a matter of perspective sometimes, a matter of emphasis. And truth uh, is on both sides. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the problem is when we stretch it a little bit too much and we break the tension, uh, there is predestination. <laughs> we cannot deny it. Now, how do we uh, you know understand that uh, in the presence of this other truth, which is uh, fr- uh, human freedom, uh, uh, Someone once said, uh, a, a heresy is uh, one truth from the Bible that ignores the other truth from the Bible. So, uh, yes, there is predestination. How we understand that in light of everything else that the Bible says about uh, human responsibility and human freedom? Some people are, are, some Christians are uncomfortable uh, with uh, God's sovereignty in the presence of human freedom. Therefore, they break the tension and they can come up with Things like, oh, there's no such a thing as human free will. It's just an illusion. Well, uh, there you have it. You just broke the tension. Uh, uh, I I don't see that God is less sovereign in the presence of human freedom, uh, just as he's not uh, sovereign or less sovereign in the presence of evil in the world. Uh, uh, And the presence of evil in the world is real. Um and, and yet there is this deep mystery. God is still sovereign, uh, God is still elects. Uh and, and we can come up with different theories um or approaches, you know, like God predestines based on his foreknowledge. Yeah, we can subscribe to some of those uh theories. At the end of the day, we need to recognize it is a deep mystery, uh, but my faith is not blind. Uh, I'm not just going to go and uh, you know, take a cup out saying, oh, it's a mystery. And no, uh, faith seeking understanding. I-, I love this phrase from St. Anselm of Canterbury. right? Uh, we try, but we need to recognize that there is only so far we can get with our uh, human minds. And, and, and after that, I have learned to be okay with mystery. And I don't know all the answers. I know that God is almighty and and a loving God. Uh, Not because of this interpretation of of Augustine or predestination, but because of the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, he proved himself to be a loving God. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he proved himself to be an almighty God. And and in my own experience and, and in the experience of millions of Christians, he is loving and powerful because he is transforming our lives from sinners to saints one day at a time. Uh, that is our aim and our hope. Uh, but uh, it's not a blind faith. Uh, there is a, uh, you know, experience in the rich tradition of the church as well.
0: And I think that's so well put. You talked about holy mystery. And most Anglicans who adhere to the classic Anglican position— would never try to define how there is a true presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. But we accept the reality of that true presence. And so we need to be as generous with some of these other mysteries and to say things like, well, you know, David wrote, I know more than all my teachers, but he also wrote, these things are too great for me. (laughs) And and so, you know, there's some tension there. There's tension in the mystery of the sacrament. There's tension in the mystery of soteriology, of how God saves us, um, when God saves us, what level of involvement we have when we are chosen before the foundations of the earth, and yet we have responsibility within responding to the faith. And when we can live in that tension of mystery, not like you said, just sort of taking it like pablum, but to really wrestle with it in that tension, we get to a deep understanding of the faith. It becomes a part of us. It's incarnate in us. Speaking of tension, Father Julio, you wrote about the sort of binary response within many Hispanic communities concerning Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and we talked a little bit about that before. You mentioned in your blog post, unfortunately among Hispanics there are mostly two big poles that oppose each other with Latino passion and might. You are either an anti-Protestant Roman Catholic or you are an anti-Catholic Protestant. Room for middle ground or a via media is almost non-existent, close quote. How can a classic Anglican view of our tradition speak to this cultural divide?
1: Well, in in my context, um, um, uh, I try to educate yeah, at every opportunity I have that, we Anglicans, or the Anglican Church, is a Reformed Catholic Church, um, and you know, it, it, in the prison where I serve uh, full time as a chaplain, uh, most of uh, the inmates coming to my Anglican service, worship service, uh, they are Catholic because obviously they feel at home uh, with uh, the sacred space of the chapel in the liturgy. But then I, I explain to them uh, the meaning of the word Catholic that is not synonymous of Roman. Uh, and and to the evangelicals, I try to explain that the word Catholic is not a bad word. <laughs> it's a good word. It and is I, a good, you know, it's a good, tried, really good word. Yeah. yeah, we want to be Catholic, actually. Uh, and so I explain to them what is the meaning of, of 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 Catholic? And obviously, that goes beyond universal. You know, it means uh, whole. You know, according to the whole, the complete faith, the complete doctrine, the complete uh, treasures of, of the church, the the, the whole authority, everything uh, that that we uh, uh, that the apostles left us. So. Uh, we I try to educate uh, uh, that uh, there are branches uh, of of the ancient church Catholic and that uh, we are one one of them uh, and and yes we we went through the Reformation uh, and so we are a reformed Catholic church uh, so uh, that that uh, helps me to build bridges of understanding. Uh, the more radical ones that are, like, that I mentioned, you know, uh, that are, like, uh, very, very anti-Protestant, anti, uh, uh, there are very few of them that, that really uh, would reject uh, the um, Anglican Mass, so to speak, uh, because it's not Roman. There are a few. There are a few that oh, it's not Roman Catholic. Then, uh, then uh, you are totally void and null. <laughs> there are very few of them uh, that would re- react in that way. We have them uh, even in the prison, but most of of the emails are are very very simple uh, in their faith. In and it's good enough for them that that we have a Catholic understanding of the faith. It's, it's good enough for them. Uh, so I would say that uh, how we can, as Anglicans in our via media, uh, be, uh, you know, these br- uh, bridges between these these two poles of this cultural divide is... Through education, every time we can, but also um, uh, just uh, just being ourselves, uh, not trying to uh, to be Protestant <laughs> or, or, or or Roman Catholic, just just be a faithful Anglican, and uh, and explain what that means. Uh, it has it has helped me in my context.
0: Father Julio, you were born into the Roman tradition made your way to the Baptist Church and then to the Methodist Church, after which you found your spiritual home in Anglicanism. And you wrote that this journey was not a, quote, pathological sense of dissatisfaction, end quote, rather a deep longing for the truth. What advice do you offer for our listeners who may find a longing for the truths of the ancient faith especially when those truths may not be apparent in their current worshiping life?
1: Uh, Well, uh, the number one thing that helped me uh, outgrow my uh, Protestant uh, tradition, um, and I spent 30 years in it, uh, was uh, to seek with honesty. Uh, Seek and you will find is the promise of our Lord, uh, but we need to seek uh, with honesty, and and related to that is uh, humility. Um, I I had to uh, be brave enough and honesty enough to recognize that. Uh, there were issues in the Bible. Uh, when I when I was, for example, in the Baptist Church or even in the Methodist Church, uh, they there were difficult passages, so so to speak, as they are called with the scripture. And and I did not discard them. Uh, and in just rereading the scriptures with an honest Heart in an open mind, uh, I started to to doubt my assumptions, presuppositions, and, and dogmas documents uh, that I had inherited uh, in, in in those Protestant churches. So um, seek honestly, be humble, keep an open mind, and also what has helped me is to understand that. It's not just a switch that is on and off uh, regarding uh, to the truth. Tr- the truth is more about a spectrum, um, and I don't believe that now that I'm in the Anglican Church that all the the evangelicals and, and, and Protestants are 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 totally wrong. No, they are our brothers and sisters, and uh, and uh, if we persevere, <laughs> we will be together in heaven. <laughs> So so why would I need the Anglican Church if, if I can be saved in, in the Methodist or, or uh, any other Protestant denomination? Because I have a passion for the truth, and I want all of the truth this side of eternity eternity that I can get in uh, and, and, and all the richness of the faith. Uh, I want to get closer to uh, all of the truth. So we have that spectrum um, on the far end to the left. I would say we have those groups on the fringes uh, uh, and even others that fall outside, like Jehovah Witnesses and, and other groups, cultish groups. But then you have legitimate denominations, legitimate Christian denominations. Uh, uh, where would we position, for example, the Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, I mean... I think uh, they are accepted now as a, as, as, a, as a legitimate denomination. After all, they believe in the Trinity, but then they don't believe in hell and, 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 and other things. So yeah, they you know we can position certain denominations along that spectrum. I want to be closest to all of the truth, and uh, I don't believe uh, that any church on earth. Uh, possesses 100% of the truth, uh, and obviously the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church uh, do not uh, agree with what I just said. <laughs> they believe that we are the Church and we are infallible and we're it. Okay, well, setting that aside, uh, I, I I want to be uh, as closest as possible to all the truth. So I want more and more, and I will keep seeking and. Uh, uh, I, I cannot say I am fully there. Uh, my journey continues, uh, and it is not about worship styles. It is about uh, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, right? But whose truth? <laughs> uh, well, and, and, Calvin, and I... Calvin's truth, uh, uh, Luther's truth, or whose truth? Yeah, I want to worship God according to all of who God is. I want to be truthful to who God is in my worship. And God, like I mentioned before, God is a 100% transcendent God, but God is also a 100% immanent God. So my worship needs to reflect that, uh, reverential, uh, dignified, uh, you know, that's the liturgy. On the other hand, I, I, I need, you know, he's my heavenly father. And sometimes, you know, I have I freedom to come to him without all, you know, the, the bells and, and and whistles of of the liturgy. There must be a tension. it must be something in between, uh, via media, that, yes, the liturgy, but at the same time, the evangelical spirit. Because God is both. That is the truth about God. And I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. So I'm passionate about truth, uh, you know, not only in the scriptures, but uh, you know, the, the truth about God, who God is. Uh, so it's all, all related together. And I, I think what
0: I get from that, and, and having spent some time with you, is that when we're looking in concert with scripture, tradition, and Reformed Catholic thought, then we are getting a fuller picture of the truth, not because truth is relative, uh, truth truth is objective. <laughs> uh, truth truth is a man named Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. But we get a fuller revelation of who Christ is when uh, you know, for example, if. If we are reading in concert with the early church fathers, if we are looking at the councils and the creeds, if we are experiencing the faith once delivered, as opposed to the faith filtered through a 15th or 16th century academician who simply says, well, you know, the sacraments aren't that important. Well, that's unknown to the church catholic and the historic church. And so we would be missing out on a huge portion of God's truth. Though we would have a lot of it, we'd be missing out on that. From that, I mean, how we get there is is formation and discipline. And um, one of the things that I love about classic Anglicanism is that we don't ignore the necessary Nature of formation and discipline. I love how you talked about uh, we want to be within the historic liturgy of the church. At the same time, sometimes we need to come to our Heavenly Father as, as David did, you know, on our knees, on our bed, weeping uh, in, in that way. And it's not that we're tied to one rigid area or another, uh, we have both. But within formation and discipline, we also have a place to be able to center that that via media, that strong current of orthodoxy to which we aspire. And so, from time to time, I'm able to join you and some of our brothers in the discipline of morning prayer. Um, you belong to a monastic order within the jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy. How has that deepened your faith? In what should someone do who's interested in learning more about this way of life?
1: Yes. Um, it's all about sanctification, uh, right? Um, and obviously, uh, the fruits uh, of, of, of that is uh, service, Um um, there is some psychological aspect to it. Uh, I'm an introvert. Uh, I don't know if because of that I'm more attracted towards the contemplative uh, practice of, of spirituality and faith. Um, but I-, I was already fasting, even as a Methodist, because that's what uh, John Wesley did in the early Methodists They fasted every Wednesday and Friday, according, according to the uh ancient tradition of the church. So I was doing already that. And then when, when I, I, I became an Anglican priest, then I had to submit myself to that discipline of the daily office. And and that really helped me out to, uh, well, to discipline my devotional life. Uh, so many times we get involved in the ministry And we believe that because we're, we're serving the Lord, uh, that, that, uh, we are strong in the spirit and we don't make time for, uh, a time, uh, to be with God and, and to meet him in, in the scriptures and in prayer. And, uh, for me, it was always a struggle and the discipline of the daily office uh, has helped me tremendous, helped me tremendously. Uh, now, in this monastic order that we are just uh, starting, is even more intentional. Uh, uh, because just because I am obliged to do the, the the daily office as an Anglican priest, that doesn't mean that I do it faithfully. <laughs> but now, it, belonging to this community. Uh, you know, we help each other by having this commitment and we have an appointment every day uh, at this time in the morning and we help each other uh, uh, achieve our goals uh, by doing it together.
0: And it's a great inspiration to me. I I work in an area where I don't have access to the internet um, regularly, but sometimes I get to go in a, a little later and on those days, there you guys are. I mean, it like like a a steady drumbeat of faithfulness in the discipline and and accountability, a kind and loving accountability for one another, but an accountability that causes each of us to want to see one another. We we miss one another if we don't get to see one another, and it's a great joy, and you guys always make me feel welcome. Uh, It's the Order of St. Cuthbert, and I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes uh, if somebody's interested in checking that out. But for those that aren't familiar or who are just learning about the daily office, this really was uh, the vision of Cramner to boil down the hours that existed within monasticism, the seven hours, and get them down to something that the average layperson could get their head wrapped around uh, of morning and evening prayer and something before you go out into the field to work and something that you do as you come back in. Uh, There's also midday prayers. There's also Compline, if one wants to participate in that. My wife and I uh, say Compline together every evening. We say morning prayer together every morning. And it is a wonderful discipline. You're exposed to the majority of the canon. You go through the Psalms every 60 days. It is a great and wonderful way to be able to engage, and you don't have to be a part of a religious order to do that, or to be ordained. In fact, it was designed specifically for people to be able to do it any time and any place. It is right and good and a joyful thing to to be able to do. We might we might Absolutely. say, "Absolutely, yeah." Yes. So let's shift gears here a little bit, Father Julio, and talk uh, towards your vocation as a priest. Currently, you serve as a chaplain in the federal prison system. In one sense, the life of an incarcerated person is very regimented and yet can be very dangerous and unpredictable. How has the sacramental life and the discipline of the Anglican tradition shaped your ministry and the spiritual lives of those to whom you minister?
1: Well... um... There is this uh, motto uh, that uh, that those of us who serve in a prison environment know very well. Uh, and it's, uh, it's not just a motto, it's, uh, it's a guideline in, in all of what we do. And it, it says, uh, we do this or we don't do that uh, according to the good and orderly running of the institution. That is foundational. Uh, That trumps everything. Uh, Whenever we have a compelling governmental reason, and it is for the good and orderly running of the institution, yes, we do it. Uh, And that resonates very well with uh, what St. Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians. Let all things be done decently and in order, right? Right. Well I was gonna say it are... sounds
0: very familiar to me. <laughs> yes. and you went there. I'm so glad.
1: <laughs> well, inmates are used to have having a very structured daily lives and routines. The worst enemy in a prison is having idle inmates. <laughs> we don't want that and and they don't want either. They don't like it when when there is a disruption in the routines, the daily routines of of uh you know they work they 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 take classes uh reentry programming and then they have their evenings they go to a recreation yard or worship services very a uh, very structured life well when uh uh obviously the um, anglican worship service is uh is very uh decent and orderly <laughs> But I when I offered the actually the evening prayer to them, I opened evening prayer to them. Uh, they, they started to, to like it, you know, uh, the cycles of it, uh, these sacred uh, not just sacred space, but entering into sacred time. Uh, and, and, and becoming a, a, a routine, you know, like a, a daily or weekly routine, they liked it very much.
0: That's a fascinating. And that's
1: something that as an, yeah as an Anglican I could offer to them and and obviously help them to uh, to to pray uh, uh, more often or to actually start praying. Many of them were not praying at all. Sure. So,
0: I mean, I can you know. imagine that Kronos drives you nuts in prison. Whereas Kairos, you know, entering into sacred time it yes. is 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 a time that is is beneficial. Whereas Chronos uh, is is something that you may have to keep your mind off of uh, during de- during doing your time, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, yes, yes. And when we don't, we cannot get together, especially uh, now with the uh, pandemic uh, restrictions, uh, especially in the prison. Uh, they still do uh, the uh, the evening prayer on their own in their units, Oh, that's their housing awesome. units. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it's tremendous. Yeah. I mean, and this is an Anglican gift to them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not Anglican. You know, we received it from the uh, from the church. In but but like you mentioned, you know, uh, what Cranmer did in in summarizing it to two offices, it, it, it was genius. It was very good. Yeah.
0: And I can see evening prayer being very beneficial um, on a multitude of levels. And when you are in prison or you are in the military and deployed or you find yourself uh, at the fringes of the mission field, uh, there's uncertainty. And evening prayer speaks to that. That uncertainty and the need to be able to pray—you know—to keep, keep us safe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't often think about that, but but the ancient church thought about that quite often, and many of us in Western society can can have a false sense of safety, and the it, it's a great reminder. And so, what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful way for us to end the program today, talking about the gift of Anglicanism in that environment and thank you so much for your ministry uh to the incarcerated and to folks that uh, i know benefit from the work of the incarnate ministry that you've been called to father julio it's been a pleasure to have you on the Cl- classic anglican podcast the pressure is mine you've been listening to the classic anglican podcast we look forward to being with you during our next episode to learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received and keep Anglicanism classic and